remember in Raiders of the Last Ark, when the Nazis and Belloc have opened the Ark, and Indy says, I think right before they open it, he says, Marion, listen to me. Whatever happens next, don't look at it. Don't look at the Ark. Then all of a sudden, this stuff starts happening. Visions and, and this really cool, like, low synthesizer thrum <laughs> happens. And then these beautiful spirits come out. And uh, then all hell breaks loose. And they cut back to Indy and... and, and Marion and, and they're struggling and their eyes are sh closed and he's like, keep your eyes shut, Marion. Don't look. Don't look. Well, there's an outtake from while they were making Raiders of the Lost Ark where Marion is like saying, Indy, I, I want to look. I, I want to see. I want to see. And Indy's like, don't look, Marion. I, I want to see, Indy. I want to see, please. And he goes, Marion, I... All right, look. And you can hear the crew burst into laughter and they have to do another take. I'm not sure if that is connected to this episode in any way. Maybe I just wanted to talk about that and make that sound. Hello, good sirs and madam. This is Rish Outfield, and this just happens to be the podcast that dares not speak its name. I wonder if anybody has ever stumbled upon the podcast that dares not speak its name and been disappointed that it hasn't been about that other thing. I don't think I've ever considered that in all these years. It just seemed like a very, very cool name for a podcast. And unlike the Rish Outcast, which Big Anklevich essentially named, this one's all me, baby. Okay, so as you know, Bob, this is the show where I take somebody else's story and I do a reading of it. And I try to do this every month. Uh, one of my goals for 2022 was to do, I think, 10 of them, but I might have been super ambitious and said 12 of them. In which case, I may have to double up at the very end of the year, which is fine. But I knew as the weather started getting warmer, that before too long, we'd be opening up the cabin and I could go on a Wednesday afternoon and come back on a Thursday afternoon every week if I wanted. As long as I didn't have other obligations, it looks like next week I will, but that's fine. That's okay. I was excited about it because I thought, okay, I'm going to have a designated editing period and a designated podcasting recording period every week uh, for the rest of the summer and into the fall. And that's super exciting. And uh, if you're a listener to my podcast, hopefully that's exciting to you because it means more episodes more regularly. And uh, you're welcome. If you want to thank me, please support me on Patreon. I have been putting out stuff that's just for them. Not nearly as much as they deserve. I'll give you that. Uh, Marshall Latham. Marshall! Yeah, there you go. Has a couple of um, 
tiers on his Patreon where you get stuff that nobody else gets if you're a supporter of that level. And it's great. I think it, I, I'm super inspired by that, encouraged by that, enthusiastic by that. So where was I? I got interrupted. You can look forward to a meaty outtake. Meaty? Am I using the word? How about beefy? A pork sirloin of an outtake. I cannot remember what I was saying. Anyhow, on these episodes, I present a story done by somebody else. And now I remember I was talking about being able to go to the cabin. And my productivity skyrockets when I go to the cabin. I blog more. I edit a heck of a lot more. I read more. And I podcast more. That feels like a win-win-win. Usually I write more, too. But I haven't been doing any writing this month. Well, when I say any, I've been writing about two or three days a week. And that's not good, but that's okay. I can work harder. Anyhow, I opened that book of stories that I picked up years ago. I bet it was 2016, 2017. And I stumbled upon one called The Voice in the Night. And it seemed familiar to me seemed like I had read it somewhere before. It's, I was going to say, it's possible that I recorded it last year and it was one of those that was lost, but surely I would remember if it was just last year that I recorded it. I think I may have just skimmed that story two years ago when I first opened the book and maybe I read it silently to myself. But the story was familiar. And now I'm going to present it to you. You wouldn't believe this, but I've been recording for 17 minutes. Huh. I should get in and out as fast as I can, right? But hopefully you like the banter, as Big and I used to call it, just as much as you like the stories. And if not... So, please enjoy The Voice in the Night... By William Hodgson. William Hope Hodgson. William Hope Hodgson. I can't say his name. William Hope Hodgson was an English author. Producing a large body of work consisting of essays, short fiction, and novels, spanning several overlapping genres including horror, fantastic fiction, and science fiction. Hodgson used his experiences at sea to lend authentic detail to his short horror stories many of which are set on the ocean, including his series of linked tales forming the Saragasso Sea stories. He's most widely known for two works, The House on the Borderland and The Nightland. He was killed by an artillery shell during World War I at the age of 40. The Voice in the Night was published in Blue Book Magazine, November 1907. The Voice in the Night by William Hope Hodgson It was a dark, starless night. We were becalmed in the northern Pacific, 
Our exact position, I do not know, for the sun had been hidden during the course of a weary, breathless week by a thin haze which had seemed to float above us, about the height of our mastheads, at whiles descending and shrouding the surrounding sea. With there being no wind, we had steadied the tiller, and I was the only man on deck. The crew, consisting of two men and a boy, were sleeping forard in their den, while Will, my friend and the master of our little craft, was aft in his bunk on the port side of the little cabin. Suddenly, from out of the surrounding darkness, there came a hail. Ahoy! The cry was so unexpected that I gave no immediate answer because of my surprise. It came again, a voice curiously throaty and inhuman, calling from somewhere upon the dark sea away on our port, broadside. Schooner ahoy! Hello? I sung out, having gathered my wits somewhat. What are you? What do you want? You need not be afraid, answered the queer voice, having probably noticed some trace of confusion in my tone. I am only an old man. The pause sounded oddly, but it was only afterwards that it came back to me with any significance. Why don't you come alongside, then? I queried somewhat snappishly, for I liked not his hinting at my having been a trifle shaken. I, I can't. It wouldn't be safe. I. The voice broke off, and there was silence. What do you mean? I asked, growing more and more astonished. Why not safe? Where are you? I listened for a moment, but there came no answer. And then a sudden, indefinite suspicion of I knew not what coming to me. I stepped swiftly to the binnacle and took out the lighted lamp. At the same time, I knocked on the deck with my heel to waken Will. Then I was back at the side, throwing the yellow funnel of light out into the silent immensity beyond our rail. As I did so... I heard a slight, muffled cry, and then the sound of a splash, as though someone had dipped oars abruptly. Yet I cannot say that I saw anything with certainty, save, it seemed to me, that with the first flash of the light there had been something upon the waters, where now there was nothing. "'Hello there!' I called. "'What foolery is this?' but there came only the indistinct sounds of a boat being pulled away into the night. Then I heard Will's voice from the direction of the after-scuttle. "'What's up, George?' "'Come here, Will,' I said. "'What is it?' he asked, coming across the deck. I told him the queer things which had happened. He put several questions. Then, after a moment's silence, he raised his hands to his lips and hailed, "'Boat! Ahoy!' From a long distance away, there came back to us a faint reply, and my companion repeated his call. Presently, after a short period of silence, there grew on our hearing the muffled sound of oars, at which Will hailed again. This time there was a reply. Put away the light! I'm damned if I will, I muttered. But Will told me to do as the voice bade, and I shoved it down under the bulwarks. Come nearer, he said, and the oar strokes continued. Then, when apparently some half-dozen fathoms distance, they again ceased. Come alongside, exclaimed Will, 
There's nothing to be frightened of aboard here. Promise that you'll not show the light. What's to do with you? I burst out. That you're so infernally afraid of the light. Because... Began the voice and stopped short. Because what? I asked quickly. Will put his hand on my shoulder. Shut up a minute, old man, he said in a low voice. Let me tackle him. He leant over the rail. See here, mister, he said. This is a pretty queer business, you coming upon us like this, right out in the middle of the blessed Pacific. How are we to know what sort of hanky-panky trick you're up to? You say there's only one of you. How are we to know unless we get to squint at you, eh? What's your objection to the light anyway? As he finished, I heard the noise of the oars again, and then the voice came, but now from a greater distance, and sounding extremely hopeless and pathetic. I am sorry. Sorry. I would not have troubled you. Only I am hungry, and... So is she. The voice died away, and the sound of the oars dipping irregularly was borne to us. Stop! sung out Will. I don't want to drive you away. Come back. We'll keep the light hidden if you don't like it. He turned to me. It's a damned queer rig, this, but I think there's nothing to be afraid of. There was a question in his tone, and I replied, No, I think the poor devil's been wrecked around here and gone crazy. The sound of the oars drew nearer. Shove that lamp back in the binnacle, said Will. Then he leaned over the rail and listened. I replaced the lamp and came back to his side. The dipping of the oars ceased some dozen yards distant. Won't you come alongside now? asked Will in an even voice. I've had the lamp put back in the binnacle. I, I cannot, replied the voice. I dare not come nearer. I dare not even pay you for the provisions. That's all right, said Will, and hesitated. You're welcome to as much grub as you can take. Again, he hesitated. You are very good, exclaimed the voice. May God, who understands everything, reward you. It broke off huskily. The, the lady, said Will abruptly, is she... I have left her behind upon the island, came the voice. What island? I cut in. I know not its name, returned the voice. I would to God, it began, and checked itself as suddenly. Could we not send a boat for her? asked Will at this point. No, said the voice with extraordinary emphasis. My God, no! There was a moment's pause. Then it added, in a tone which seemed a merited reproach, It was because of our want I ventured, because her agony tortured me. I am a forgetful brute, exclaimed Will. Just wait a minute, whoever you are, and I will bring you something at once. In a couple of minutes he was back again, and his arms were full of various edibles. He paused at the rail. 
Can't you come alongside for them? He asked. No, I dare not, replied the voice, and it seemed to me that in its tones I detected a note of stifled craving, as though the owner hushed a mortal desire. It came to me then in a flash that the poor creature out there in the darkness was suffering for actual need of that which Will held in his arms, and yet, because of some unintelligible dread, refraining from dashing to the side of our little schooner and receiving it. And with the lightning-like conviction there came the knowledge that the invisible was not mad, but sanely facing some intolerable horror. "'Damn it, Will,' I said, full of many feelings, over which predominated a vast sympathy. "'Get a box. We must load off the stuff to him in it.' This we did, propelling it away from the vessel, out into the darkness, by means of a boat-hook. In a minute a slight cry from the invisible came to us, and we knew that he had secured the box. A little later he called out a farewell to us, and so heartfelt a blessing that I am sure we were the better for it. Then, without more ado, we heard the ply of oars across the darkness. "'Pretty soon off,' remarked Will, with perhaps just a little sense of injury. "'Wait,' I replied. "'I think somehow he'll come back. "'He must have been badly needing that food.' "'And the lady,' said Will. "'For a moment he was silent. "'Then he continued, "'It's the queerest thing I've ever tumbled across "'since I've been fishing.' "'Yes,' I said, and fell to pondering. "'And so the time slipped away, an hour, another, "'and still Will stayed with me, for the queer adventure had knocked all desire for sleep out of him. The third hour was three parts through, when we heard again the sound of oars across the silent ocean. "'Listen,' said Will, a low note of excitement in his voice. "'He's coming, just as I thought,' I muttered. The dipping of the oars grew nearer, and I noticed that the strokes were firmer and longer. The food had been needed. They came to a stop, a little distance off the broadside, and the queer voice came again to us through the darkness. Schooner, ahoy! That you? asked Will. Yes, replied the voice. I left you suddenly, but there was great need. The lady? questioned Will. The lady is grateful now on earth. She will be more grateful soon in in heaven. Will began to make some reply in a puzzled voice, but became confused and broke off short. I said nothing. I was wondering at the curious pauses, and apart from my wonder, I was full of a great sympathy. The voice continued. We, she and I, have talked as we shared the result of God's tenderness and yours. Will interposed, but without coherence. I beg of you not to, to belittle your deed of Christian charity this night, said the voice. Be sure that it has not escaped his notice. It stopped, and there was a full minute's silence. Then it came again. We have spoken together upon that which 
which has befallen us. We are thought to go out without telling any of the terror which has come into our lives. She is with me in believing that tonight's happenings are under a special ruling and that it is God's wish that we should tell you all that we have suffered since. Since. Yes, said Will softly. Since the sinking of the albatross. Ah, I exclaimed involuntarily. She, she left Newcastle for Frisco some uh, six months ago and hasn't been heard of since. Yes, answered the voice. But some few degrees to the north of the line, she was caught in a terrible storm and dismasted. When the day came, it was found that she was leaking badly and presently it falling to a calm. The sailors took the boat, leaving, leaving a young lady, my fiance, and myself upon the wreck. We were below, gathering together a few of our belongings. When they left, they were entirely callous through fear, and when we came upon the decks, we saw them only as small shapes afar upon the horizon. Yet we did not despair, but set to work and constructed a small raft. Upon this we put such few matters as it would hold, including a quantity of water and some ship's biscuit. Then, the vessel being very deep in the water, we got ourselves onto the raft and pushed off. It was later when I observed that we seemed to be in the way of some tide or current which bore us from the ship at an angle, so that in the course of three hours by my watch her hull became visible to our sight, her broken masts remaining in view for a somewhat longer period. Then, towards evening, it grew misty, and so through the night. The next day we were still encompassed by the mist, the weather remaining quiet. For four days we drifted through this strange haze, until, on the evening of the fourth day, there grew upon our ears the murmur of breakers at a distance. Gradually it became plainer, and somewhat after midnight it appeared to sound upon either hand at no very great space. The raft was raised upon a swell several times, and then we were in smooth water, and the noise of the breakers was behind. When the morning came we found that we were in a sort of great lagoon, but of this we noticed little at the time, for close before us, through the enshrouding mist, loomed the hull of a large sailing vessel. With one accord we fell upon our knees and thanked God, for we thought that here was the end to our perils. We had much to learn. The raft drew near the ship and we shouted on them to take us aboard, but none answered. Presently the raft touched the side of the vessel and seeing a rope hanging downwards, I seized it and began to climb. Yet I had much ado to make my way up because of a kind of grey lichenous fungus which had seized upon the rope and which blotched the side of the ship lividly. I reached the rail and clambered over it onto the deck. Here I saw that the decks were covered in great patches with the grey masses 
some of them rising into nodules several feet in height. But at the time, I thought less of this matter than the possibility of there being people aboard the ship. I shouted, but none answered. Then I went to the door below the poop deck. I opened it and peered in. There was a great smell of staleness, so that I knew in a moment that nothing living was within, and with the knowledge I shut the door quickly, for I felt suddenly lonely. I went back to the side where I had scrambled up. My, my sweetheart was still sitting quietly upon the raft. Seeing me looked down, she called up to know whether there were any aboard of the ship. I replied that the vessel had the appearance of having been long deserted, but that if she would wait a little, I would see whether there was anything in the shape of a ladder by which she could ascend to the deck. Then we would make a search through the vessel together. A little later, on the opposite side of the decks, I found a rope side ladder. This I carried across, and a minute afterwards she was beside me. Together we explored the cabins and apartments in the after part of the ship, but nowhere was there any sign of life. Here and there, within the cabins themselves, we came across odd patches of that queer fungus, but this, as my sweetheart said, could be cleansed away. In the end, having assured ourselves that the after portion of the vessel was empty, we picked our ways to the bows between the ugly grey nodules of that strange growth, and here we made a further search, which told us that there was indeed none aboard but ourselves. This being now beyond any doubt, we returned to the stern of the ship and proceeded to make ourselves as comfortable as possible. We cleared out and cleaned two of the cabins, and after that I made examination whether there was anything eatable in the ship. This I soon found was so, and thanked God in my heart for his goodness. In addition to this, I discovered the whereabouts of the freshwater pump, and having fixed it, I found the water drinkable, though somewhat unpleasant to the taste. For several days we stayed aboard the ship without attempting to get to the shore. We were busily engaged in making the place habitable. Yet even thus early we became aware that our lot was even less to be desired than might have been imagined. For though, as a first step, we scraped away the odd patches of growth that studded the floors and walls of the cabin and saloons, yet they returned almost to their original size within the space of twenty-four hours, which not only discouraged us, but gave us a feeling of vague unease. Still, we would not admit ourselves to be beaten, so set to work afresh, and not only scraped away the fungus, but soaked the places where it had been with carbolic, a canful of which I had found in the pantry. Yet, by the end of the week, the growth had returned in full strength, and in addition, it had spread to other places, as though our touching it had allowed germs from it to travel elsewhere. On the seventh morning, my sweetheart woke to find a small patch of it growing on her pillow, close to her face. At that, she came to me, so soon as she could get her garments upon her. I was in the galley at the time, lighting the fire for breakfast. Come here, John, she said, and led me aft. When I saw the thing upon her pillow, I shuddered. And then and there we agreed to go right out of the ship and see whether we could not fare to make ourselves more comfortable ashore. Hurriedly, we gathered together our few belongings 
and even among these I found that the fungus had been at work, for one of her shawls had a little lump of it growing near the edge. I threw the whole thing over the side without saying anything to her. The raft was still alongside, but it was too clumsy to guide, and I lowered down a small boat that hung across the stern, and in this we made our way to the shore. Yet as we drew near to it, I became gradually aware that here the vile fungus, which had driven us from the ship, was growing riot. In places it rose into horrible, fantastic mounds, which seemed almost to quiver as if with quiet life when the wind blew across them. Here and there it took on the form of vast fingers, and in others it just spread out flat and smooth and treacherous. Odd places it appeared as grotesque stunted trees, seeming extraordinarily kinked and gnarled, the whole quaking vilely at times. At first it seemed to us that there was no single portion of the surrounding shore which was not hidden beneath the masses of the hideous lichen, yet in this... I found we were mistaken, for somewhat later, coasting along the shore at a little distance, we decried a smooth white patch of what appeared to be fine sand, and there we landed. It was not sand. What it was, I do not know. All that I have observed is that upon it the fungus will not grow, while everywhere else, save where the sand-like earth wanders oddly, pathwise, amid the grey desolation of the lichen, there is nothing but loathsome greyness. It is difficult to understand how cheered we were to find one place that was absolutely free of the growth. And here we deposited our belongings. Then we went back to the ship for such things as seemed to us we should need. Among other matters, I managed to bring ashore with me one of the ship's sails, with which I constructed two small tents, which, though exceedingly rough-shaped, served the purpose for which they were intended. In these we lived and stored our various necessities, and thus for a matter of some four weeks all went smoothly and without particular unhappiness. Indeed, I may say with much of happiness, for, for we were together. It was on the thumb of her right hand that the growth first showed. It was only a small circular spot, much like a, a little grey mole, my God, how the fear leapt to my heart when she showed me the place. We cleaned it between us, washing it with carbolic and water. In the morning of the following day, she showed her hand to me again. The grey thing had returned. For a little while, we looked at one another in silence. Then, still wordless, we started again to remove it. In the midst of the operation, she spoke suddenly. What's that on the side of your face, dear? Her voice was sharp with anxiety, and I put my hand up to feel. There, under the hair by your ear, a little to the front a bit. My finger rested upon the place, and then I knew. Let us get your thumb done first, I said. Then she submitted only because she was afraid to touch me until it was cleansed. I finished washing and disinfecting her thumb, and then she turned to my face. After it was finished, we sat together and talked a while of many things, for there had come into our lives sudden, very terrible thoughts. We were, all at once, 
afraid of something worse than death. We spoke of loading the boat with provisions and water and making our way out on to the sea. Yet we were helpless for many causes and and the growth had attacked us already. We decided to stay. God would do with us what was his will. We would wait. A month, two months, three months passed and the places grew somewhat and there had come others. Yet we fought so strenuously with the fear that its headway was but slow, comparatively speaking. Occasionally, we ventured off to the ship for such stores as we needed. There we found that the fungus grew persistently. One of the nodules on the main deck became soon as high as my head. We had now given up all thoughts or hope of leaving the island. We had realised that it would be unallowable to go among healthy humans with the thing from which we were suffering. With this determination and knowledge in our minds, we knew that we should have to husband our food and water, for we did not know at that time that we should possibly live for many years. This reminds me that I have told you that I am an old man. Judged by years, this is not so, but... But... He broke off, then continued somewhat abruptly. As I was saying, we knew that we should have to use care in the matter of food, but we had no idea then how little food there was left of which to take care. It was a week later that I made the discovery that all the other bread tanks, which I had supposed full, were empty, and that beyond odd tins of vegetables and meat and some other matters, we had nothing on which to depend but the bread in the tank which I had already opened. After learning this, I bestirred myself to do what I could and set to work at fishing in the lagoon, but with no success. At this, I was somewhat inclined to feel desperate until the thoughts came to me to try outside the lagoon in the open sea. Here, at times, I caught odd fish, but so infrequently that they proved of but little help in keeping us from the hunger which threatened. It seemed to me that our deaths were likely to come by hunger and not by the growth of the thing which had seized upon our bodies. We were in this state of mind when the fourth month wore out. Then I made a very horrible discovery. One morning, a little before midday, I came off from the ship with a portion of the biscuits which were left. In the mouth of her tent, I saw my sweetheart sitting, eating something. What is it, my dear? I called out as I leapt ashore. Yet on hearing my voice, she seemed confused. Then, turning slyly, threw something toward the edge of the little clearing. It fell short and... A vague suspicion having arisen in me, I walked across and picked it up. It was a piece of the grey fungus. As I went to her, with it in my hand, she turned deadly pale, then arose red. I felt strangely dazed and frightened. My dear, my dear, I said, and could say no more. Yet in my words she broke down and cried bitterly. Gradually, as she calmed, I got from her the news that she had tried it the preceding day and, and liked it. I got her to promise on her knees not to touch it again, however great our hunger. 
after she had promised. She told me that the desire for it had come suddenly and that until the moment of desire she had experienced nothing towards it but the most extreme repulsion. Later in the day, feeling strangely restless and much shaken with the thing which I had discovered, I made my way along one of the twisted paths formed by the white sand-like substance which led among the fungoid growth. I had, once before, ventured along there, but not to any great distance. This time, being involved in perplexing thought, I went much further than hitherto. Suddenly, I was called to myself by a queer, hoarse sound on my left. Turning quickly, I saw that there was movement among an extraordinarily shaped mass of fungus close to my elbow. It was swaying uneasily, as though it possessed life of its own. Abruptly, as I stared, the thought came to me that the thing had a grotesque resemblance to the figure of a distorted human creature. Even as the fancy flashed into my brain, there was a slight sickening noise of tearing, and I saw that one of the branch-like arms was detaching itself from the surrounding grey masses and coming towards me. The head of the thing, a shapeless grey ball, inclined in my direction. I stood stupidly, and the vile arm brushed across my face. I gave out a frightened cry and ran back a few paces. There was a sweetish taste upon my lips where the thing had touched me. I licked them and was immediately filled with an inhuman desire. I turned and seized a mass of the fungus, then more and more. I was insatiable. In the midst of devouring, the remembrance of the morning's discovery swept into my mazed brain. It was sent by God. I dashed the fragment I held to the ground, then, utterly wretched and feeling a dreadful guiltiness, I made my way back to the little encampment. I think she knew, by some marvellous intuition which love must have given, so soon as she set eyes on me. Her quiet sympathy made it easier for me, and I told her of my sudden weakness, yet omitted to mention the extraordinary thing which had gone before. I desired to spare her all the unnecessary terror. But for myself, I had added an intolerable knowledge to breed an incessant terror in my brain, for I doubted not but that I had seen the end of one of those men who had come to the island in the ship in the lagoon, and in that monstrous ending I had seen our own. Thereafter we kept from the abominable food, though the desire for it had entered into our blood. Yet our drear punishment was upon us, for day by day, with monstrous rapidity, the fungoid growth took hold of our poor bodies, Nothing we could do would check it materially, and so, and so, we who had been human became. Well, it matters less each day, only, only we had been man and maid, and day by day the fight is more dreadful to withstand the hunger lust for the terrible lichen. A week ago we ate the last of the biscuit, and since that time I have caught three fish. I was out here fishing tonight when your schooner drifted upon me out of the mist. I hailed you. You know the rest, and may God 
out of his great heart. Bless you for your goodness to a, a couple of poor outcast souls. There was the dip of an oar, another. Then the voice came again, and for the last time, sounding through the slight surrounding mist, ghostly and mournful. God bless you. Goodbye. Goodbye. We shouted together, hoarsely, our hearts full of many emotions. I glanced about me. I became aware that the dawn was upon us. The sun flung a stray beam across a hidden sea, pierced the mist dully, and lit up the receding boat with a gloomy fire. Indistinctly, I saw something nodding between the oars. I thought of a sponge, a great gray nodding sponge. The oars continued to ply. They were gray, as was the boat, and my eyes searched a moment vainly for the conjunction of hand and oar. My gaze flashed back to the, the head. It nodded forward as the oars went backward for the stroke. Then the oars were dipped. The boat shot out of the patch of light, and the, the thing went nodding into the mist. Okay, there it was, the voice in the night. This is the second question I'm going to ask my listeners. First you're going to hear, because the other ends up as an outtake. How much does it bother you when I perform a story that should be done in an English accent with my American accent? And connected to that... How much does it bother you when I try and do an English accent throughout the whole story? Which do you prefer? This was one where I chose to do the narration in American and the rest with an accent. Acting is a series of choices, I've heard it said. And um, that was the choice that I made on this one. There were a couple last year, if you recall, where... <laughs> I did an uh, English accent through the whole story, and I realized I didn't have to. And that was one where I did an American accent through the whole story, and I realized I should have been English. Oh, well. This story was from 1907, which puts it in the public domain. Hasn't stopped me in the past, I know. But I'm trying. I like the title a lot. I wouldn't be surprised... If there are a dozen pop songs called The Voice in the Night and a half dozen horror stories called The Voice in the Night, I want to say there is a Dean Koontz novel called Voice in the Night. We have a dishwasher where I live, and my sister will often just have the kids, instead of washing the dishes, she will say, look, just rinse them and put them in the dishwasher. No. My sister will say, just put them in the dishwasher. And my mom will always say, no, don't just put them in the dishwasher. You need to rinse them first and then put them in the dishwasher. And in my mind, if you're going to go to the trouble of rinsing each dish, just wash the dishes. But, you know, that's my opinion. Anyhow, this dishwasher, when it is running, it makes a little gurgling, trickling sound. 
and sometimes I will hear the dishwasher and I will think that I'm hearing somebody speaking, somebody whispering, somebody has left a TV on downstairs, or there's somebody in the house talking and I can just barely hear their voice, but I can't make out what they're saying. And I'll walk around the house. If I had $100 for every time I've done this, I wouldn't ask you to support me on Patreon. I walk around the house saying, hello? Hello? I remember there being a time where I was just like, I can hear you talking. Hello? I got a baseball bat. And it turned out to be the dishwasher. I think about that sometimes. And I haven't written a story about it. I guess I should. If I were a real writer, I would already have written a story about it. And anything odd like that that happens that my imagination can say, hey, let me take that and see what I can do with it. I should. But what it, you know what it reminds me of? We, I'll see if I can find the clip on YouTube. But about 1986, 87, Dennis Miller did this weekend update thing on Saturday Night Live where he said uh, the Beatles albums were all reissued on CD for the first time this week. And wouldn't you know it, Charles Manson got a chance to listen to them in prison. And he said, boy, on CD, the sound quality is so much clearer. There, there weren't any voices speaking to me on that. I, you know what? I must have had a blown speaker or something. If I can find that clip, it'll be much funnier than the way I just tried to say it. Uh, but I do like that idea of the hearing voices and what are they saying? Subscribe to Rish's Patreon fund. So, the voice in the night. The big thing about this story is that we meet this sailor, refugee, whatever you want to call it, and he says to not use the lamp, not to look at him, and then he goes and he tells this story in darkness, or, or, or the sailor's hear it, but they don't see him. I, I would like to be able to do some kind of effect on the voice. The problem is there's just so much dialogue from that character. If I do an effect on the voice, it may be irritating or monotonous. I'm almost tempted to find like the sound of the ocean, too, and put that under the whole story. What am I, Brian Lincoln? I'm not promising I'll do that. The idea of Someone is there and you can't see them and they say, don't turn on the light or don't point your flashlight over here. Don't look at me, but I'm going to talk to you is really interesting. It's really maddening. I'm not sure that I could keep from looking. Haven't we read a story in the past where Somebody shows up in the room or in a tunnel or in the kitchen and said, don't turn on the light. Don't look at me, but I want to talk to you. My gracious audio. And the curiosity eats at the person. They, they want to know. They, they need to look. They need to see. 
seems a very universal thing. Though I am sure there are people that would be okay, like these characters, with not looking. Just as I am sure there are people who have even less self-control than I do. And the second that the person says, don't turn on the light, they turn on the light. Boy, that makes me want to write a story like that. But I'm sure that they have been written to death and that they are very, very good stories. Oh, you know, didn't I write a story? What was that called? It was during that period in the early 2000s where there was the website that would show a photograph or a painting and say, here, write a story based on this. And I had enough free time and no entertainment because I didn't have friends or... Uh, you know, activities that I was going to. It was during that period in the early 2000s where there was the website that would show a photograph or a painting and say, here, write a story based on this. And I had enough free time and no entertainment because I didn't have friends or, you know, activities that I was going to, that I was able to enter the contest multiple times. And I remember writing a story called, God, I want to say it was called House Guest, where something like that happens, where the guy goes over to help his friend, and he gets there much too late, and the friend is exhausted, and he says, look, you can help me in the morning. I'm just going to go to sleep. You go to sleep, too. He goes in the guest room. That's what it's called, guest room. And somebody comes in the room during the night. It's um, his friend's wife. And she says, don't turn on the light. That may be one of those stories that I recorded just as a little bonus on one of my audio collections and never had any intention to release it elsewhere. Maybe I'll put it up for people who support me on Patreon. Although it'd be more of a punishment than a reward for those guys. That's the thing that I wanted to talk about on this episode. I mean, obviously, it's a very sad story. It. Did you ever see Creep Show? Stephen King wrote a story called Weeds. It wasn't that long. Well, it was that long ago, but it, it wasn't that long before Creep Show came out. I'd say he published Weeds in 1979, and Creep Show came out in '82. But in that movie. There's a segment called The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill. And this man gets infected with a fungus that's very, very similar to the voice in the night. And it crawls over his body. It infects him. King's story is funnier. And the creep show entry is very funny. It's the only purely comedic segment in that, that movie. But... But the idea of this happening to you is not funny. It's, it's awful. And you'll, you'll hear about a fate worse than death. Well, maybe you don't hear about that anymore. They used to talk about that all the time. Oh, it's a fate worse than death. Being on a road trip with three devotees of the Big Bang Theory is a fate worse than death. But this, this feels like a fate worse than death. I mean, part of... The only balm that there is, I guess, is that he's got the woman with him, 
you know, he's not alone suffering through it, but it's still awful. And, and, and to be with somebody that you care about and they are going through this awful death sentence is terrible too. Yeah, it's a fate worse than death. Question number three for you guys. Should I do a podcast that dares not speak its name about weeds, the Stephen King story that inspired the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill? It's never been in any of his collections, and so it's been out of print for 40 years. I wonder if you'd be interested in that. Back to the beat, y'all. The story that the the cursed man tells is awful. And I guess it reminds me a little bit of leper colonies and how you used to hear about that all the time. I'm not sure when leper colonies went away, if they indeed did go away. Didn't Mother Teresa minister among leper colonies? So it can't have been that long ago. If you remember my uh, essay about Luke Skywalker, where he said, F Mother Teresa. I didn't, I mean, I did say that, but I didn't mean it. I like Mother Teresa a lot. Sorry. Has there been a movie about Mother Teresa? If so, who played her? I guess that's question number four. Although when it comes time to edit this, I can always just look it up. Right now I'm driving, so the answer eludes me. What they need to do is get somebody like Blythe Danner and Gwyneth Paltrow to play Mother Teresa. And when she's... Well, Gwyneth is not young anymore. Okay, forget I said that. But the idea of a, a place where disfigured people, where diseased people go, and they can be with their own kind, I guess that's always bothered me. That's always been heartbreaking to think about. It shouldn't be. After all, that's the end of Eye of the Beholder, that Twilight Zone episode. That's the end of Ben-Hur. He uh, finds his sister and his mother at a leper colony, right? They're, they're not dead, and they have been cured, healed. But the idea of a place where people who are suffering in a way that makes the normal people uncomfortable. So they're kept away from society. They're shut away. They're hidden. That's pretty awful. What's going to happen to this man and this woman? They'll, they'll be able to subsist on these supplies. But then when the supplies run out, do you continue to try and catch fish? Or I suppose the time comes when you say, okay, I guess we're done doing this. Boy, now I'm sad. Huh. Sometimes you'll hear these stories and they're parables, fables, they're cautionary tales, or, you know, or they're just the stories of somebody who is much worse off than you. And that can actually make you feel better. It can make you feel bad, sure. But it's supposed to make you say, hey, I'm not in that situation. You know, I've got a man who loves me. I've got somebody who would care if I 
lived or died, I've still got years ahead of me. And you can look on the bright side of life. Maybe this story can serve that purpose for you. I wanted to share it with you, even though I didn't have a great deal to say. But in thinking about it today, I thought about that idea of don't look, of allow me to tell my story, but do not look upon me, and how that has been used before and will continue to be used. I'm also reminded of that awful urban legend where uh, the girl puts her hand down in the dark and the dog starts to lick it. The name of that story eludes me, but it's the punchline to the story, and I hate whenever anybody calls it that. It's like the ghostly hitchhiker. Oh, gee, I wonder what the punchline of this story is going to be. The hook. I wonder what is going to appear at the end of this story. Why do they always have these spoilerific names? That was a detour I didn't mean to take. Anyhow, it's one of those... You might as well have written, You're lucky you didn't turn on the light. That's written on the wall, you know? In fact, that might be another urban legend that's very closely related to the dog licking the hand. Anyhow, I hope you enjoyed my performance of this story. I hope that you liked it. I know that Hodgson wrote other nautical-themed horror or ghost stories. If I live long enough, we'll probably get to another one, because I liked this one quite a bit. If you liked it quite a bit, patreon.com forward slash wishoutfeel. If you didn't, well, you're lucky you didn't turn on the light. Just take my word for it. I have been Rish Outfield. I appreciate you taking the time to share with me this podcast that dares not speak its name. Good night. Whether by design or dreadful mistake, you have been listening to the podcast that dares not speak its name, which was produced under a Creative Commons 3.0 Attribution, no derivatives license. By all means, listen, download, share the file with your bitterest friends and most beloved enemies. But the file shan't be sold, edited, or claimed as your own. You'd never do that anyway, so why are we talking about it? No doubt you noticed the fine music in this episode. By one Kevin MacLeod of the website incompetech.com who released it under a Creative Commons license. I only wish he had a podcast so I could be listening to that instead. Shoot, I think I scared the deer that these guys were looking at. Damn. I'm... Ah. I came down the hill just now, and there was this family standing in the road. And so I, I, I didn't slam on the brakes, but I hit the brakes. I slowed, I slowed 10 miles an hour.
five miles an hour, three miles an hour and drove past them. And they got out of the road and yeah, a deer ran off. A deer had been in the road with them. Dang. Um, I'm too sensitive and too apt to apologize. What was I talking about? Oh, well, at least I gave you an outtake, didn't I? Boy, I hope that you like outtakes. I'm going to ask a couple of questions in this episode. And the first is, do you like the outtakes? That reminds me of um, one of Jack Handy's deep thoughts that they had in Saturday, on Saturday Night Live around 1990-91, where he said, they say that God dwells inside every one of us. If that's the case, I hope he likes enchiladas, because that's what he's getting. Sorry. Oh, there's a deer in the road here, too. I didn't hit it. I hope to never hit a deer again, as long as I live. That would be nice. To not hit anything ever again would be nice. But it's going to happen. Shoot, this is a long-ass outtake, guys. Big Anklovich is always telling me... Okay, maybe he told me twice. Maybe he told me eight times. But he, he used to always tell me that he knew how he was going to die because he spent 90 minutes driving on the freeway every single day. And there were always accidents. He was always covering stories about accidents, about people just like him that died on their commute. You know, they went off the road, they fell asleep, they got hit by another car, they hit an animal, and bam, lights out. And he said, you know, by law of averages, if I spend 90 minutes a day in traffic, that's more than seven hours in traffic a week, one of these days, I'm not going to make it home. And it was, oh boy, it was a chilling thought. I mean, it still is. What an awful thought. Maybe it stuck with me more than it stuck with Big, but I doubt it because he has a family. And every time he sees somebody who's a smear on the road, or traffic slows because a truck jackknifed on the road. He has to think about that. Think about his wife and think about his kids and think about the end. The reason I'm, I'm mentioning it is that I drive to the cabin all of these times. And uh, was it last year or the year before? There was an elk in the road that I nearly hit. I thought about it. The thing was the size of a horse. I've told you that before, right? I did a whole thing on my blog because it was during that period that I was blogging every single day where I started going forward again. I got on my phone and I talked about what had just happened. And I thought, you know, I was lucky because it was in the road. I was going too fast to stop. Luckily, it was a little bit to the left of me. But yeah, it, it frightened me. And for the rest of that year, and I think last year as well, although it might have been last year that it happened, I made sure to leave the cabin before it got dark. Because these animals tend to come out at dusk and they get on the roads and it's harder to see when the sun is super low in the sky or completely gone. And so I, I made this goal of always leaving before it got too dark. And as summer makes way into fall, you get frustrated. 
Because instead of the sun going down at 9 or 8.30, it goes down at 8 and then 7.30 and then 7.10 and 7. You know, it's just frustrating how there's less and less daylight, but that, that's life. So you have to leave earlier if you want to be safe. Anyhow. Okay, last bit. This is a long outtake, ain't it? I talked to Big just yesterday, and he told me that there might be a job for him in his son's school district. And his wife has been trying to get Big to get a job with the school district for years, and Big won't do it. I know it sounds like I'm being super judgmental. We all have our weaknesses. I am a piece of crap when it comes to submitting my stories to contests, to putting it out there, to trying to get magazines to buy them, to even asking people if they wouldn't mind reading my book, Hatchling. That is one of my huge failings. And I'm not sure that that is one of Big's failings. He, of course, never writes. So, you know, it balances. But one of Big's failings is that he gets comfortable and he will not do anything to better his situation. No matter how many people tell him, dude, 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 do this. He won't do it. Anyway, he told me yesterday that there's a job that it looks like he is qualified for, that it looks like he is tailor-made for. He won't have to be stuck in traffic anymore. He won't have to die quite as soon as the Stygian witches had decreed that he would be. And I was happy for my friend. I, I am feeling emotional. <laughs> telling you about my happiness for my friend. Of course, he might still not get the job. But, you know, he's a good man, and I don't see him very often. My buddy Jeff lives in Germany, which is uh, on the other side of the world. And I see Jeff more than I see Big Anklovich. I guess I just wanted to say that. I, I, he might not get the job, but if he does, that's good. And maybe we'll see more of each other. But if not... It, He'll have more time with his family. He'll have less time stuck on the freeway. And that's good for everybody. Okay, I hope you dug that. Remember, let me know. Which seemed almost to quiver as if with a quiet life when the wind blew across them. This I soon found was so and thanked God in my heart for his goodness. That's me falling asleep. How many more pages? Oh, shit. Lots. I took a somnambulant. I took a somnambulant. I... Somnambulant. I took a somnambulant. I took a... I took a sob... I took a somnambulant. Somnambulant. I took a somnambulant step in his direction. Shit, I fell asleep. This I soon found was so, and thanked God in my heart for his goodness. That's me falling asleep. How many more pages? Oh, shit. Lots.